A reading from Psalm 119. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. I have sworn an oath and confirmed it to observe your righteous ordinances. I'm severely afflicted. Give me life, O Lord, according to your word. Accept my offerings of praise, O Lord, and teach me your ordinances. I hold my life in my hand continually, but I do not forget your law. The wicked have laid a snare for me, but I do not stray from your precepts. Your decrees are my heritage forever. They are the joy of my heart. I incline my heart to perform your statues forever to the end. The word of the Lord. We are in the middle of a conversation with God and with each other about a theological topic and a scriptural image or metaphor that speaks very powerfully to us about the truth of God and the truth of our lives. That image, that metaphor, of course, is about the light of God, light that functions in so many ways, of course, metaphorically, spiritually for us. There is, as you might well imagine, a huge body of literature, of theology written over the centuries in the life of the church to talk about the light of God and all the different ways it's described and discussed in Scripture. And this last week, someone sent me uh, actually a historic document that gives further description and explanation of the light of God, especially in the life of the church. You see, we're always interested in the different ways that we can see the light, that we can bring the light into our lives, that we can keep the light going. And so I want to thank uh, Juan Carlos, our director of music and chief purveyor of bad humor for these theological affirmations. Where are you, Juan? Oh, you're hiding among the altos this morning, I see. So this is uh, an ancient theological document. It is in the form of question and answer, as Neil, an expert in these things, will tell us, uh, occurs in so many of the old catechisms of the church. A question is asked and then an answer is given. So we'll see how many answers you can get. How many Episcopalians does it take to change a light bulb? (laughs) Anybody care to hazard a guess on that one? Four. It takes one to change the bulb, one to bless the elements, one to pour the sherry, and one to offer a toast to the old light bulb. (laughs) How many recovering Episcopalians do we have in the room here? Yeah, we got a bunch. That's good. I know we have some recovering Southern Baptists here. How many Southern Baptists does it take to change a light bulb? Anybody know? One? One? Now, this answer, John, says 16 million. However, they're badly divided over whether changing the bulb is a fundamental need or not. (laughs) There we are. Now, I know we have some Lutherans here. Recovering Lutherans, that's what I call you, yes. How many Lutherans does it take to change a light bulb? 
Well, the Lutheran's answer is this. We read that we are to so fear and love God that we cannot by our own effort or understanding comprehend the replacement of an electromagnetic photon source. It is rather by faith, not by our efforts affected toward the failed worldly incandescence that we truly see and that our own works cannot fully justify us in the presence of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Of course, it is still dark. Being a Presbyterian, I must tell you the Calvinist understanding of how many people it takes to change a light bulb. The answer should be obvious to anyone who's been in the church. None. Because God has predestined when the lights will be on. <laughs> this one is my favorite. How many television evangelists does it take to change a light bulb? Only one. But for the message to continue, send in your donation today. <laughs> I'm tempted just to say amen and be done with this, don't you think? <laughs> It is a serious question that, that we must ask, and if we've not asked it before, let's ask it now. How do we find the light? How do we see the light? How do we find the light when we've wandered off into darkness? How do we keep the light on? Well, it's a question that the whole of the scriptures answers, and much of the answer is grounded in the Old Testament conviction then further explained and manifested in Jesus that the light of God comes into the world through the word of God. It is God's word, God's mind, God's Torah and law and ordinances and precepts and decrees and statutes and commandments, all that God has told us and is telling us still that turns on the light, that shines the light, that is the light for us. And through that light, then, we find the way to be happy, to be successful, to be filled with God's power and joy and love and live the life that God means for us to have. We have to say more than that, of course. We need to think with the psalmist about all of the different situations of life into which the light of God shines. In this small eight-verse section of the huge 119th Psalm, the psalmist gives us a few clues about the kinds of things that happen in life, the kinds of things that, that are part of life upon which God's light shines. Affliction is one of those. I am afflicted, but God's word somehow speaks to me. What are your afflictions? Every single one in this room is afflicted with something. Affliction might be grieving the loss of a loved one or struggling to find a job or floundering in a relationship or simply trying to keep our own mind and soul together so that we can meet another day. I don't need to describe affliction to you. You all are experts in affliction. 
But the psalmist reminds us that God's word, God's mind, God's revolution, revelation of God's truth is what answers and puts together a way through our afflictions. But it's not just affliction that we have in life. If it is, heaven help us. Much of life is simply about the business of making our decisions and deciding what we're going to do today and then doing it. The psalmist describes that part of life in this beautiful way. He says, I, I hold my life in my hand. And we all do that, don't we? We all hold our own life in our hand. We must decide what we're going to think and what we're going to do and who we're going to be. Yes, there's lots that impacts us from the outside, but at the end of the day, you are left with you, only you. You hold your life in your hand. How are you going to decide then? How are you going to make decisions? How are you going to do the things that you decide you want to do? Are you going to use your own intelligence, your own wit, your own experience, your own wisdom and skill? Or do you need some help with that? The psalmist says that I take my life in my hand and then I submit it to the wisdom and experience and teaching of God in his word. Sometimes life is not filled with afflictions from within. Sometimes life is not about making decisions, the everyday things that happen. Sometimes life is about struggling with things that happen to us from the outside. The psalmist says that the wicked lay a trap for me. How many of you are wicked and have laid a trap for someone? How many of you have had a trap laid for you. There is wickedness and evil all around us, and if we're honest, there is some wickedness in us. And that evil seeks to destroy us, to cancel, to negate God's plan for us. What's the answer? The answer is in God's word. The answer is in God's truth. The answer is in the things that God teaches us about how we are to live and how we are to be connected to God so that we can conquer that evil as God conquered it ultimately for us in Jesus. Now, we might think that God's word applies in certain situations of life. That's the way most law works. The Word of God is described sometimes as law. We have laws to apply to most situations in life. When you're driving down the freeway, there's a law about how fast you can go. When you're doing your taxes, there are laws about how that's supposed to be done. Is there a law written in the human code of jurisprudence that applies to all of life? Well, maybe not. But God's law applies to all of life. And so we have that famous phrase made famous partly by the music that the choir sang, thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. You see, when we are born, we set out on a journey following a path, maybe a path of our own choosing or someone else's choosing, but ultimately we want to find the path that is of God's choosing and we want the light to see where that path is. And so every moment of life, Every step in life is to be informed and inspired by God's word. 
All of that's great sounding theology in a sense, but I always want to ask the question, how are you and I going to learn that word? What is the actual physical agency by which we put ourselves into that place where we're seeing the light and learning to live by the light and following the light? The psalmist gives us some answers. He speaks of it in different ways. In one of the lines of this section that we're looking at, he says, I will swear, I will confirm with every ounce of my being that I am going to keep the law of God. I don't know about you, but I was taught that swearing was a bad thing. And most of what that meant was that I wasn't supposed to use certain words. And I still feel that way about those words. (laughs) Swearing is more in the scripture about saying to God, this is what we want, this is what we intend, this is what we commit to. Jesus reminds us that we don't have the power to keep our own promises necessarily, but it still is a good thing to decide what our goal and what our plan and what our commitments are all about. And so one of the ways to have that light, to learn that word, to follow that pathway, is to decide that's what we're going to do and make a commitment to God. But there are other methods by which we learn this life-giving word. You might not think of it as a method, but the psalmist says that I praise God and I learn from God's precepts and commandments. What does praise and learning have to do with each other? Well, let me describe that dynamic to you. If you are searching for a new skill, perhaps, or a new understanding, one of the things you might do is find somebody who's an expert and then go to them. You might go to them and say, I understand that you're the best preacher in the world. Teach me how to preach. I understand that you are the best music director in the world. Teach me how to direct music. I understand that you know everything, every secret about how to stay awake in church on a Sunday morning. Teach me how to do that, right? I knew one would get to you eventually. You go to the experts and you say, you are the best at this. I want to learn from you. That's what praising God is. God, you're the best. You're the authority. Not just at one thing, but at everything. You're the one that holds the whole universe in your hand. That's what we're doing when we're praising God. We're saying, God, you're the one that knows better than anyone else how we are to live life. And you're the one that has the power to help us do that. There's another way that the psalmist talks about how we can actually do something that will put us in touch with that light. He says, I incline my heart to the Lord. I incline my heart. How many of you have ever been in a conversation with someone and you were ready to end that conversation and you had to turn away from them? That's what happens when we don't want to be in a conversation with somebody, when we do not want to relate to somebody. We turn our back to them, or another way to look at that is we turn our heart away from them. The psalmist says, I incline my heart to God. 
Therefore, I listen and I learn. And the more my heart is oriented towards God, the more I will learn and the more faithful and true I will be in following. In all of these ways, the psalmist reminds us that we will observe God's law, we will learn God's truth, we will not forget God's commandments, we will not stray from that pathway that leads us to the happy life that God wants us to have. And we celebrate that. In all of this, we remember what the psalmist says, that God's word, God's truth is our heritage. I asked a lot of folks in Bible study this past week if they had received a huge inheritance. Most of that was when I wanted to get a little piece of it for the church, Dick. But, but nobody came forward and said, I have this wonderful inheritance. But we all have an inheritance, don't we? Some of us maybe have just one photograph from our family history. Maybe we have a whole household full of furniture. Maybe we have a good name. Maybe we have an amazing bank account that's our inheritance, our heritage. But none of that means anything because we have a heritage from our faith, from our God. We have a treasure that cannot be destroyed. We have a treasure that will pay our way forward in life, in every circumstance of life, for all of life, that fills us with joy and that gives us life itself. The light of God that is expressed in the Word of God is the source of life itself. And that's what we want is life. Remember in the Old Testament in Genesis, we're told that God speaks a word and everything is. God said, let there be light. God said, let there be the dry ground. God said, let there be the animals. God said, let there be Adam and Eve. Life itself, existence itself is dependent on that living word of God. And we have that word available to us. That word is what makes us competent for living. That word is what gives us power, strength, energy, direction, focus, wisdom, and we need it every day. That kind of truth, that kind of knowledge isn't out there everywhere. It's not always easy to find unless you look for it in the word. Sometimes the truth is paradoxical. What is true is not what is immediately obvious or apparent. One time there was an elderly gentleman who lived on a street that was filled with children and he would sit on his porch every day and observe the comings and goings of the kids and he noticed that there was a group of older boys who were kind of bullies and there was a, a younger boy who used to walk in such a way that though he always had to go past the houses of where these bullies lived and and for weeks and weeks and weeks, he observed from his porch vantage point that the bullies would confront this little boy and they would challenge him. One of them would hold out a dime and a nickel in his hand and say, which one of these do you want? Take the one that you want. And the little boy would always take the nickel for some reason and the older boys would laugh and then go on their way. 
Well, finally, the older man had had enough of this, and one day he called the little boy over to him, and he said, you know, son, you should take the dime. It's worth twice as much as the nickel is. And the little boy looked at him and said, yeah, I thought about doing that. I know that, but I decided that the second that I take the dime, they'll stop playing this game with me, and so far I've already made 20 bucks off of them. Smarts, smarts, wisdom for living life. That's what we have in the word of God. That's what lights our pathway. And so we come to that light. We study that word. We seek to be educated and inspired by it always. It's one of the reasons that we come to this table We come to this table because we know that God's word is not just a word. It is a word made flesh in Jesus Christ. It is a word that is lived out in his sacrifice and service to us, especially the sacrifice of his own life, his body, and his blood. And so we come to this table recognizing that in the word of God that is revealed here, we are fed and strengthened We're made smart for living and competent for living because of the Christ, the Savior who lives in us. And so ministering in his name, I invite all of you to come, no matter how you change a light bulb. (laughs) Everyone's welcome to come to this family feast. Come and enjoy.